0: crickets in the thorn tree i'm half of your host nicholas Lorimer, joined by the other half of your hosts
1: gabriel krauser
0: and today awesome. we're going to be talking a bit about foreign affairs again we are back to so uh last time we talked about foreign affairs we did what asia the grand tour of the 20th century
1: history of asia yeah we did um, it was a pretty ambitious podcast it was like how history might have been different if 1945 China had gone the other way. Indeed, but I, th- uh, I
0: believe I believe it's our yeah. most listened to podcast actually that we've ever done. Mm. Um, so mm. apparently, apparently it was a hit, um, and uh, I met a, I met a listener who said that he listened to it while working a late shift. So we're glad to be uh, entertaining Keeping you in the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but um, we're going to now go west to talk about America. Um, and and what's going on there? Oh, oh, before we do that, let's just give a I think a thirty seconds on. Did you think there's anything interesting in Sona really apart from the the usual um of fudge, and contradiction?
1: So I don't know. Everyone has an opinion on Sona. I'm gonna keep my own, I suppose, and just say Jeremy. I, just, I nearly said Jeremy Cronin, who is the <laughs> lead communist. Uh, Jeremy Gordon. Uh, is this uh, wonderful columnist for Politics Web who, I don't know how to put this, like he's an old Jewish dude and he immediately lets you know that he's an old Jewish dude because he starts <laughs> a lot of his columns with, like, as with this one, like, Rabbi Yeshiva said you must. Uh, <laughs> speak he was once little a publisher of The Daily much. Sun, I think. Yeah, I think he was the publisher of The Daily Sun. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I you know, know him. Something. I know him. He's got so much nachas, he's got so much warmth for his fellow man. This fellow person. Um, but he, so, so, and he said, he's like, you know, I'm one of these guys. I try to be generally upbeat. Like, one of the lessons from the Torah is you must try and face adversity with a bit of a smile. But he says you can overdo it. Like, early in the morning, there's some people who, before breakfast, they're already telling you what a beautiful day is and everything's going to be great. And he's like, I don't want to be one of those guys. But I think I was because I had to write my sonar column before I actually listened to the speech. But it was only going to come out just <laughs> after I listened to the speech. <laughs> And somehow the madness of that situation made him feel very excited. And he thought, what if I pretend to be Ramaphosa's speechwriter and I just write the speech that I think he should say? And he was very (laughs) excited until about 10 a.m. when he realized after the fifth draft was thrown into the rubbish bin that there is nothing good that Ramaphosa could say that he would ever say. You know, his root cause analysis would have to be, I am the problem. (laughs) guys. My party's the problem. So sorry. Uh the voters can help us out. Just vote us. Just vote against us. Yeah. At get actions. rid of us
0: please. It's the only way to save yourselves. I thank you.
1: <laughs> so short of that. What could he say? I think that's a question people should ask themselves before they get too angry about the speech. Like what the hell could he say? Yeah.
0: No look, that's 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 fair to a. Point, but it almost—it's kind of like almost taking his agency out of the the question. In the sense, it's just kind of assuming that him and his party are just so awful, which, you know, they are. Um, that there can be no chance of anything good happening. Um, yeah, that's a fairly no, it's not. He, position.
1: He, he could have said, "Look, Zuma really needs to go to the Zondo Commission. Ace Marikasulu really needs to stop defending this." He could have. Right. He could have been specific but, in but rather than
0: corruption, corruption, corruption. To. Yeah. yeah. We know that he's not going to do that. Or and I mean, you know, we, we talked about this on the Daily French show, but there was this whole sort of Ah, he read the rule the Riot Act to Zuma and Ace Makashule, and then you hear what the riot act was, and it was, Oh, they've sent guidelines for stepping aside of your corrupt to the provinces and the national working committee to decide on how it will be implemented and there needs to be the input from branches, and you go, Oh, uh, yeah. so it's another it's another damn squib.
1: Yeah. Dude, uh, I don't think he's I don't think he's awful. I just think he's yeah, he's he's damp. <laughs> yes, the damp rumaphosa. It's like a great soggy towel
0: that's fallen in the bath. And just yes. sort of <laughs> And what we need it. is a cane or a yes. rod. Indeed. <laughs> um so yes, anyway, that aside, uh, not much interesting going on there, just the sort of usual corruption and maladministration stuff um oh i i was excited to see that uh, that smart cities is is back um i was hoping that perhaps we would be wise enough to just leave that as a sort of hanging thing from last time and not address it but no no we're doubling down on it so lanceria is going to be the city of the future
1: um which is which, which is know. by the way it's one of the great <laughs> ideas you know it was that was when i was in high school in the 2000s that was one of my favorite ideas i was like guys come on stop renaming pretoria 'Cause that was a big issue of the mid two thousands. was yeah, like, yeah. build a cool city. Build a cool city. And it would have been a great mm-hmm. thing to do back then. And right back, now back when we had electricity a... and
0: a police force that worked a bit better than it does now. And money. When we had I money. money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Back when we had a surplus, a budget surplus. You could build cities then, not when we're, you know, super in debt, no electricity, the police service doesn't work. The infrastructure is all sort of barely holding friendly. on. Oh, I see. There's good news. Yeah. Um, over over the last couple three months, uh, Joburg's um tar factory for the you know for, for asphalt for the roads, uh, wasn't working. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners around Joburg noticed that there was a lot of potholes. Well, it appears to be working again. So, okay, <laughs> that's good news. That is good <laughs> but, news. <laughs> but um, thank you, Nick. It's, it's, we take our small our victories. So, I, yeah, there's a lot of potholes that have been filled recently. That's because, you know, suddenly they have tar again. But for, who, <laughs> for how long? Who knows? Anyway. Um, but let us turn to our topic at, at hand here, uh, which is, of course, the U.S. economy. And there is a creeping feeling in some corners, um, of which we are, are one of them, that there may be a little bit of overheating in the U.S. economy and that there could it could be a little bit of a bubble. Um, now, I'm not so wise in the ways of international finance. Uh, this is far more Gabriel's department, as he as he once upon a time was our top financial journalist. I'm not sure if he's a financial journalist anymore, but he was once our top financial journalist. Oh, yeah. And we're going to try and do this without getting too there's a lot of jargon and sort of technicalness that sometimes gets creeps into these analyses. So we're going to try and do a sort of 20 minutes on what exactly um this 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 is. So so Gabriel, what is what is the theory here? Why why might we think that the US economy is 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 a bit of a bubble at the moment?
1: Okay, before answering that, I just want to say why we might hope it's true. Um Jeremy Grantham is a sort of leading captain of industry in America. Um, he made like $200 million in the last little while with a, uh, a company that he invested in that uh, makes batteries. And he's in, sort of into green energy. And he's a market reader, sort of respected guy. Anyway, he was making the case, you should sell your American stocks if you can. And buy emerging market resource stocks. So, you, you know, this sounds like great news for South Africa. Americans are going to want to take their money out of the stock market and put it into something like a South African mine or a South African construction company. Um, that sounds, you know, th- this is just to say when, when the developed world busts, it can be really good for the emerging world and so we might hope that there's a bit of a bubble perversely i mean one wouldn't really want lots of americans to suddenly lose their life savings right. uh but sucks for them in, but in the nasty a, world a huge
0: amount of right if we get a huge amount of foreign investment as a result of a little bit of a stock market wobble in america that's not the worst thing for us at least in the universe
1: so problem is uh, back to sona it, it just doesn't look like we are um right. in a position to so take that, advantage of us
0: Right. So, if there is a wobble, that money is not going here. It's going to Mm -hmm. India. It's going to you know, I don't know, Vietnam. It's going to yeah,
1: Brazil, places that have got far more
0: right than we have.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So, um, why would you? Why would you? Uh, sort of think about betting against the American market? It's doing really well. It was on the longest bull run in history, which means the longest period in which every month it was getting more and more valuable the stock market and obviously in corona crunch time there was a bit of a dip but the rally has been huge and so that part of the reason people talk about GameStop is that there's just an embarrassment of riches right there's just so many companies that have actually extremely well tesla has become the most valuable company etc etc this guy's battery company i mean just to talk about uh uh jeremy grantham he was like dude, I don't believe in all of the money that I've just made because my, this battery company that I'm invested in has yet to sell a battery. We are four years away from making any profit at all, and we're currently right. valued at more than General Motors. <laughs> and, and, and a couple of times, um, you know, Elon
0: Musk has even said, I think he, yeah. he once said uh, on Twitter, just kind of out of the blue, he said, Tesla stock is overpriced, to be honest. <laughs> which of course yeah. caused a little bit of a wobble but it was very temporary because the stock went straight back up.
1: Yeah, yeah. When the bus is saying, "Guys, this is too much." And then the crowd is saying, "Nah, this is not enough." Then that's one reason to worry, right? So the fact that it's doing so well is in itself a little bit of a concern. But of course that's that's, you know, people have been like, "Oh, it's been doing so well. It's got to do badly before." And then it's just continued to do well. So, that's not the deciding factor. The deciding factor is that usually there's a trade-off between stocks and bonds. So, a bond is a bit of government debt. And when you buy a bond, you get a fixed coupon, they call it. You get an amount, you buy a $100 bond, you get $1 every year for 10 years. And then you get $100 back, you give the bond back. So you've got one hundred and ten dollars now, right? In simple terms, Um, and on the other hand, when you're buying a stock, if the company does really well and sells a whole lot of uh, tackies or or gumballs or tea bags, then they have some extra cash. They will pay you a dividend. So they'll be like, "Hey, everyone who owns our stock, here's some money," and that'll depend. Yes, is cash. That'll depend how much of a dividend you get depends on how well the company does. So the one is a fixed investment and the other one is a more risky thing. You might get nothing. You might get a lot more. Right. In fact, if it does well, you have to get a lot more. Otherwise, no one would ever invest in that. So usually there's kind of a trade-off. When the market is, when people are a little bit more nervous, then they buy more bonds and bonds get more expensive and less stocks and stocks get less expensive. Or if the market's doing really well. People are buying more and more stocks, so they're bidding up the price. But they're taking their money out of bonds. So bonds get a little bit cheaper, a little bit cheaper. And it's only really the funny-duddy kind of uh, scaredy-cats or the big institutions that have to keep some of their assets in a safe haven that are still holding onto those bonds. So the bonds prices go down as the stock prices go up or the stock prices go down as the bond prices go up. There's usually a bit of a trade-off. Now, to be honest, because of you know, background inflation and market growth, It's not like going down means actually going down. It can mean just going flat or increasing at a slower rate than the other one. But that's usually the pattern that you see. That's not been the pattern. The pattern we're seeing right now is that the stock market has never been. Well, really since uh, the rally, um, since September last year, in in a big way, but also kind of for the last 10 years since the global financial crisis. Okay. to a less extreme extent. We've been so seeing... So basically right, a, a decade-long long phenomenon to some degree that's accelerated yeah. after COVID, right? Exactly right. And right now, the bond market has never been more expensive and the stock market has never been more expensive. So they're both the mm-hmm. most expensive at the same time. So th- then you w- ask yourself, why is that? And... And one well, the answer US be, is just... just no, slow, like, down, the, slow down. Slow yeah, down. No, no, no. Okay, you're jumping okay. ahead. Because... <laughs> Because one answer that you might give is the fundamentals of the economy are really good. You know, everything's more expensive because everything, there's just more of more. That doesn't work because unemployment, I mean, it's rallied. It went down. You know, there was lots more unemployed people in America. Right, but there's been a big wobble. But there's been a big wobble. Supply chains are disrupted. Restaurants are disrupted. A lot of service industry, entertainment industry, uh, tourism industry. Those sectors, right. when you add them up together, make up a significant portion of GDP, and they're all still in the dwang, so it doesn't look like the economy is actually flying. Yeah. By the way, aeroplane companies, not flying. Uh, <laughs> right, another good one. So, 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 so then you ask yourself, well, what's going on? And it does look like it might be the stimulus. And,
0: you yes. know,
1: Elena, my fiancé, even though she's been in South Africa, she's received... A couple of stimulus checks from the American government, you know, tens nice. of thousands of rands. <laughs> like I don't know, five dollars or something. But if you if you convert it, <laughs> yeah, if you if you trade it in, a couple thousand rands. <laughs> it's not bad. So, so I to try and to try and understand if that's really what's. So the thought is the basic thought is, the government has invented so much new money, and then mm-hmm. given it to people over the last ten years. And then a lot, lot more in the last year. America's jet g- debt to GDP ratio was fifty percent in twenty ten and it's like hundred percent now, before COVID. Right. And then much right. more now. Yeah, because they've they've so just it, the new stimulus bills, what, three trillion dollars? Something like that. Yeah. So you invent a lot of money. Guess what happens? Things get more expensive. Now mm. the, there's an old fashioned word for it inflation. Ooh. But we haven't. But it hasn't been the usual inflation. Usually, inflation means the price of consumer goods goes up. The price of a Coca Cola, a Big Mac, that goes up. And and in two thousand and eight, a lot of
0: people predicted this, right? They said, "Oh, the government's spending so much money to try and restart the economy after the
1: financial crash. There's going to the price of everything's going to go up." Yeah, and then it didn't really. And 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 the and the background idea is that. What didn't go up was wages for poor people mm. and stuff that poor people buy. But what did mm. go up was stocks and bonds, was assets held by very rich people. Ah. So, but when you have an inflation in assets, it's not usually called an inflation. It's usually called a bubble. Ah.
0: Okay, so what we're saying here, or or, or sort of the idea here, is that the inflation was kind of hidden by stuffing it into all of these assets, and that's overpriced them to something that doesn't quite make sense. It's not justified by their
1: productivity correct so and there's simple ways of making that calculation you you sort of look at how much are the companies listed on the stock exchange reporting in earnings versus what is the value that the market is setting on those companies, and that ratio the price to earnings ratio is just super high. And there's a similar, very simple equation that you make for bonds. And that ratio is super high, N- never been higher. Uh, and, and the combination of them has really never been higher. It's like terrifyingly, you look at that graph over a 50-year period and you're like, it's very scary. So mm. to try and figure this out, but so this is just a theory. I'm not sure that it's right. So to try and think about it, I, uh, I got a message from Princeton University um, saying we are oh, hosting a debate. Mm. You might have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I may have heard of it. So it's a small it had, college. This, this wonderful German uh, econo- economist professor says, we are going to host a debate between Paul Krugman, who was a Princeton professor when I was there and is a Nobel and I laureate. And
0: yeah, he won a Nobel Prize for
1: Economics in the 90s, was it? Or the early 2000s. Um, Somewhere around there, yeah. And he's a New York Times columnist. He's their big fancy brain thinker person, and the other one was Lawrence Summers, who uh, has been in the Bretton Woods Institution's head of one of them, I can't remember which. He was also the president of Harvard University, in which position he was removed because he was asked, you know, why are women a minority of PhD physics students, and he said, I really don't think it's discrimination, we've done a hell of a lot of real work to to undo that, not just at the university level but over, over decades at the sort of school, primary school and high school level to encourage girls to get onto these fast track programs and so I am just going to look at genetic differences and girls on average are smarter uh, when it comes to imagining three-dimensional objects and rotating them and fitting them together, on average girls are smarter than boys but boys have a wider standard deviation so there's way more idiot boys, but there's also a few more genius boys. And so I, and those ratios I'd expect, like the physics department to be kind of 70-30. Right. And this this does not fit with wokeism. Um,
0: uh, just to be clear, he he worked for the World Bank. I just did go and check it
1: Yeah. So, so he, so this was a debate really between the center left and the far left, because Larry Summers is a center left guy. You know, he wants... A big stimulus package. He wants bigger government. He thinks that's the solution to the problems um, But he was arguing that there's going to be a bad inflation that they, that we are looking like we, we, we're stoking a bubble in America With the stimulus uh, That he was like the stimulus last year. We probably needed some of that a lot of that um, But the stimulus that's now coming this year seems crazy because the economy seems like it's gonna start regrowing I mean is already regrowing Um, in real terms. And on top of that, you're adding the stimulus. And he said, if there's one number, Nick, I know you're not into numbers, and we said we're going to do low numbers, but if there's one (laughs) number you're going to take away from this talk, it's the following. The output gap, which means the reduction in productivity, is $20 billion a month. Uh And the stimulus is like 130 billion dollars a month so it's 5 times more so he said what was it in the global financial crisis well the output gap was I can't remember what it was but the stimulus was like 3 quarters of the output gap so if the output gap was like 40 billion the stimulus was like 30 billion this time the output gap is 20 billion but the stimulus is 120 billion so it's much, much right. more. And that's and that's what makes him think this is all this money is going to translate into a bubble. Now Paul right. Krugman's he's, argument. He's not that, a he's not a just to be clear, he's not
0: some uh died in the wool free marketeer, hardcore libertarian type of, of
1: economics guy. No. Yeah. So no, this, is, really this is unusual left. for someone from the left. Yeah. Yeah. Loves Biden, loves a lot of his appointees. Um, so, so Paul Krugman's, the the basic contention that they, that they came to stylistically, it was interesting because, uh, Summers was sort of, uh, trying to say, you know, I think we really agree about most things and, and maybe there's just some details we disagree on. Whereas Paul Krugman was like, well, I don't want to say that, uh, professor Summers is completely, uh, crazy, but I think his claims are wildly, wildly exaggerated. So started, there's a stylistic difference. <laughs> but in the end, where they where they came together was around the, the following simple question. Are Americans going to spend the stimulus money? Right. Are and they, are they cru- actually going to stimulate things with the money they've been given? Yes. And Summers' argument was that usually if people make money on the stock market, they don't spend a lot of it quickly. So, you know, if you if you invest in stocks and in a year you make like a few thousand dollars, you're likely to spend one-tenth of that in the next year and, and try and reinvest most of it. Whereas with the stimulus check, you're likely to just spend it. Right. And Paul Krugman's argument was... No, no, no. People are going to save their stimulus checks. So the two problems with... so But they kind of agreed that if people do spend their stimulus checks now, these stimulus checks are five times more than the missing elements in the economy. So what you're really just doing is adding a lot of money on top of what there already was, and that will drive an inflation. They had to agree on that. If they don't spend it, what are they going to do with it? They're going to save it by buying stocks and bonds or putting in the bank, which effectively does the same thing, which will drive that bubble up further. So I think it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. At least that's the sort of background impression that I got from that uh, thing because they weren't talking about the bond and stock market inflation. They were just talking about consumer price inflation. But if you are already worried about the bond and stock market being super expensive and then the only two options are either poor people spend all their money now and that means that shoe companies and uh, hamburger outlets and whatever hike their prices by 10% to make up for some of the lost income that they had last year then that's going to start making it look like there's a real inflation that'll make people panic by the way we're really seeing evidence of that and that could uh precipitates a bit of a burst up and down the line, or they don't spend the money, they save it all up. And then that just means you add $2 trillion to the already super expensive stock market, which is gonna just make it even more expensive. So either right. way, it is a time to be very concerned about the health of the American economy. And Summers' argument was like the best way to stop this from happening would be to just reduce the stimulus. If you inject $1 trillion, maybe the the soup can handle it but if you inject two trillion or more than two trillion then it's so much more than he said i just i just don't i just can't see how this risk is prudent and and krugman's counter argument was look it's going to happen anyway biden is committed to doing it his administration is committed to doing it so what we as economists should do now is tell everyone that it's going to be okay because to a certain extent, if everyone believes it's going to be okay, then <laughs> then it will be. And then Larry, Larry uh, Summers' thing was like, well, you know, Paul Krugman and I, we agree on pretty much everything. But I do think we have one or two uh, disagreements. <laughs> and and one of the things I really feel is that as an economist, it's your duty to to warn people about real risks. And Paul Krugman is yeah, like, uh,
0: I don't know. I'm not... I'm not a big fan of the noble lie. I think a lot of the nonsense we got into with the lockdowns and the silliness around COVID and the response to it was because of the noble lie. Remember in the beginning of the pandemic when the official line was, no, 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 masks, no, masks, pff, nonsense, silliness, silliness. Who Only doctors need those, you stupid peasants. Don't buy them all like sheep. And then after yes. it became clear that not everyone was buying them, they were like, oh, actually, maybe they're a pretty good idea. We'd probably... We did lie to you, but that's because we thought that we needed to prevent you buying them all so the doctors yeah. would have them. We you thought know, you were the population, Right. Yeah, so, you are too stupid
1: to understand. These things are so important, nurses need them first. Uh, and you're also stupid enough that you're going to forget that we lied. Yeah,
0: so, so, so what, what was the inevitable result? The inevitable result was the anti-masking movement has had an enormous amount of ammunition to say, but you said... Yes. this and this and this four months ago. So yeah. it was the most incredible foot-shooting, institutional, reputation-damaging nonsense that we've seen in a long time. And here is Paul Krugman, who I'm shall we say not a fan of. It sounds to me kind of making the same argument, right? Which will inevitably backfire at
1: some point. <laughs> so so I've got to say, I think that... Yeah. I think I think there is some of that in there. And... And, and I do find that disappointing. I was very much on Summers' side of that disagreement. What I thought hmm. I Krugman is a Krugman is a genius. He is smarter than both of us combined. He's he's and I think that his his heart, I think he's got good intentions. I think what he really <laughs> goes to hoping, hell being
0: paved with such and such.
1: Um what he's really <laughs> hoping for, but is not prepared to say, um, but I think this probably does underlie some of the thinking behind the Biden administration's move, is that this will basically be a transfer of wealth. He's hoping that people mm. are not going to spend their stimulus checks because, in his own words, we don't really need it. Because by definition, it's 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 beyond what people are lacking. Like, yes, people right. have had hardships and they've been held over through that. And there's some people that are still going to have tough hardships, but a lot of people – are are back at their minimum wage jobs or back in their like lower middle class or middle class jobs. And they're getting a few thousand dollars on top of that. And he's hoping that just goes straight into savings. So that on aggregate, you have a a $2 trillion transfer of wealth from the rich to the poor. And as an inequality, anti-inequality guy, that seems really appealing to him. What I think he's missing out on, and I am speaking now as like a dude who's got an undergrad degree in philosophy, not as a Nobel (laughs) (laughs) laureate. But I think I'm smarter than Paul Krugman, perhaps on this very narrow point in that I just think I can stand on someone else's shoulders and see what he's missing because he's fighting in the trenches. Is that precisely this initial thing that we described, uh, which is the already overly expensive... The reason there's this inequality problem is because the bonds and stocks are so expensive right and so that extra saving going into that it's like that tragically poor people joining in right now in the stock and bond market could be the thing that pushes it over the edge it's like that terrible thing where all the cool kids are at the party and they and they have really nasty guys and they're having a great time and then some more people join and more people join and then finally the person who really needs just some hugs and some dancing and some love because he's been working really hard he arrives at the party and it's like too full the police come the fire brigade come they say the party's over um that that could be how it happens um that's not to say that it'll happen now one last note is michael burry who uh people will know as the as the the wall street the big short guy he was in that movie the big short he was played yes yes, by, yes played yeah yeah uh he he has sort of a glass eye and he's a bit autistic and he made uh a bucket load of money he made billions uh <laughs> by shorting the housing market um yeah. he said don't 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 try and short the american bond market um there's definitely a bubble there but I don't know if it's going to burst next year or in thirty years' time, right. because it, the the soup is so big that bubble yes. is in there. But for it to rise to the top and then give that sort of volcanic explosion, right?
0: Who knows? And the world's going to the world's going to be a very different place in thirty years. So it's very difficult to to kind of draw a line forever straight into the future. Yeah. Look, I mean. Uh, let me let me give you my even less because i you know i i have a undergraduate degree in history and politics from this, you know uh, <laughs> so i oh, do qualified. tell <laughs> um, but there's something in my lizard brain conservative spine that says that spending so much money and and having so much cash or, or not cash mm. but, but 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 you know funds poured out into the to the economy it's just not a great idea. Something has to go wrong. <laughs> and that's so. So so this theory is attractive to me because it does. It does sound like it makes some sense. Intu- it, it sounds like it, it would comport with what my my gut tells me.
1: You've got this um, strong intuition that there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Indeed. And I think indeed. and I think that is I think that is a, a, an intuition that conservatives often feel more strongly than right. progressives who are more inclined to think well how can you say there's too much money because i can take you to some people a suburb don't have money where there's lots of poor people um, and they and they in a sense they're right um, but not in the sense that makes a difference to whether or not the bubble's going to burst right <laughs> Indeed. Um there's so yeah, definitely uh, not too much stuff in the world. There's not too much money, you know, but there is uh, anyway. Yeah, so so I guess I guess the point of this whole thing is keep an eye on
0: what's going on in the US. There could be a bubble or there probably is a bubble. We don't know when it's going to burst. Could be a long time, could be a short time. Um but just keep an eye on it and watch developments in it because you never really know when these things are going to go. And uh, and it will
1: it, it will impact your life. Um,
0: right. It will. The, the, um, for for some countries, lives.
1: yeah. For some people, it's going to be. I mean, what what the global financial crisis did to South Africa was basically um, double down on Zuma's negative impact from the beginning. So for right, the first it, six years, from 2008 till about 2014, people could blame all of the trouble that we were going right, through. Right.
0: It hit the disaster. Of the Zuma mm-hmm. years, of the initial period of the zoom years, was, no, no, we're recovering, we're recovering. That's the reason. It's the global financial situation. It's not us. It's not us. And then when we look back ten years later, no, it really was us. Um, yeah, two thousand and eight, yeah. two thousand and nine, when Zuma came in, really is the point where everything turned around and the country stagnated yeah. and
1: started going downhill. And everyone was hit, but everyone else recovered. We didn't. Right. That's the sort of difference maker. And, exactly. and so one of these things, one of the things that uh, this kind of global crisis does when America is at the center of it is is shield political accountability uh, Indeed. when the population is not uh, worldly enough to see through, the, you, you know, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So everyone knows that there's problems in America and that affects us, but they don't know how much and how right. much that just
0: just us. imagine just imagine Sona after a, a bubble like this. Let's say it happens next year. You can imagine Ramaphosa get up and say, you know, just as we thought we were about to overcome the ravages of COVID. Look, this recklessness and greed of the Americans has. Now, cast a shadow over us again, but, you know, we're plucky and strong, and we're going to keep fighting, and uh, no matter how much damage they've done to our economy, it's so great, we're going to still pull through, and that's why you need to support me fully in this time of foreign-inflicted disaster. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, um, uh, I don't know how many people, but a significant number will buy it. Um, And there will be many a News24 opinion column about how... (laughs) You know Ramaphosa is the (laughs) the steady hand at the till to guide us through these dark times and Mm. we won't get any closer to solving the real problems
1: yeah and the other issue is that it really is a problem like if America's economy weakens we have fewer people to sell to it'll be harder to buy and uh, people whose savings are kept offshore are going to be put at risk and that means less buying power at home so it's it's a it's a two edged problem. The one thing is it's a real problem. The other thing is it'll shield other real problems. Yeah, you um,
0: know. Can I just say personally, this is particularly annoying because um, before I'd heard this theory about a week ago, a week before I'd heard this theory, I bought sixty dollars of Amazon, which is my <laughs> the sum
1: total of my off- offshore stocks. <laughs> but. <laughs> I
0: think
1: Amazon is um, you know it's an interesting thing because d- just to say um, Paul Krugman is one of these guys a bit like me who likes to t- talk about COVID-19 as a bit like a war scenario the reason I like to talk about it like war is that I it's think that government it's an extraordinary circumstance which justifies yeah. limiting certain liberties which otherwise could not be justifiably limited and one of the things that he hopes, one of the reasons that he's so bullish is that he's noticed um, the, the best periods of growth around the world generally come after war, especially in America. War right. often is good for uh, getting new tech and getting rid of inefficiencies. As long as you're not country into- being bombed. Yes, if you're not being bombed, even if you are being bombed, like, uh, you know, after the Nazis were bombed uh, and the Japanese were bombed, they had their best growth after that. Yes, but the bombing has to stop is the point. (laughs) Yes, the the bombing does have to stop. And uh, we've already talked about why we think the virus won't go away. But I do think the lockdowns will go away. Um, And the question is, has... Are, is there a silver lining to coronavirus? Like, are there, has the economy become genuinely more efficient as a result? Now, there are two ways that I read war as improving the economy. One way is that it undermines anti meritocratic esteem tokens. So in, in Europe, in America, women were dissed for working, particularly middle class women. Right. And then during the war, they the, needed the that. guys, yeah. And then after the war, women stayed in work, so the workforce was much larger, so the country got more productive. Likewise, black dudes and white dudes in America couldn't fight side by side, Um, but then that became obviously crazy. It's like not an efficient way to organize an army. Ideologically, it doesn't make sense when you're going after the Nazis. So they were like, you know what? Black dudes and white dudes can fight side by side. That kind of helps undermine the racist stigmas that get in the way of productivity. And Uh, And... and
0: I think there was a threat that something like that could happen in South Africa as well, which is perhaps no surprise then that we get apartheid just after World War Two. Yeah, um, there was a big this worry period there was, of change, right?
1: It was a huge worry. Now all, all the black, white, Indian people have fought together. Now everyone's going to think they're equal. Well, you know, we have to stop that. That was a huge part right. of the that platform. Um, so war can be good at undermining. Uh, bias and promoting meritocracy because the stakes are so high. It's like we're going to die or right. die. It's, it's, it's yes, a fight to. for
0: survival, so it focuses the mind
1: somewhat. Mm. The second thing that war can be good for is developing new technologies or or yeah. increasing efficiency in supply chains. And the box. Remember, there was a, a great article in the Economist in 2010 or so, uh, just just when I was uh, anyway, and it said, you know, maybe the greatest invention of the 20th century was the box the shipping container in particular. Because before yes. that, people kind of just stacked their stuff on ships, kind of like playing a Tetris game. And then afterwards, they were like, hold on, if we make regularly sized boxes and you put everything in the box and then the boxes can stack, you can take a lot more stuff along. And uh, you see the shipping container and the um, and global trade going up just by just by huge amounts kind of over right. the same period after the war. And that does seem to be... Again, a bit of a result of the war, that kind of pragmatic thing. So I think that if the economy has become more efficient as a result of COVID nineteen, it is because people are more happy to meet online and uh, procure goods online. Uh, and so Amazon's in and a prime time. position to, to grab those yeah. things. Right. I think it is more efficient, and Amazon yeah. is no, right it, there. it so is. I, I'm pretty sure that sixty dollars argument. You're betting on yeah. the war. <laughs> Yes. You're betting on the war having a silver lining,
0: Nick. Well, I, I was so slow to this that I think that a lot of the effect, because Amazon's stock is, I think, is some of the highest it's ever been. Um, and it's it's gone way up over the, over the COVID period because everyone recognized this vulnerability in other uh, retailers that Amazon did not share. I know that people have thrown around this theory, and I don't know what you think of it, that Amazon has been so efficient in procuring goods and delivering them. Uh, and being a retail outlet, that it's actually reduced inflation in the U.S. Um, that's another reason why consumer price inflation has not not gone up despite all this free money Indeed. floating around.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's a fascinating idea. Also, fascinating that Jeff Bezos is stepping back from his administrative role there. <laughs> yes, after I buy the stocks, <laughs> which is very annoying. No, no, but that's interesting. You know, I think it shows a a kind of maturity. There's this old yeah, Stephen Covey line, um, which which I was taught at high school by our old headmaster, uh, Mr. Knowles. He said, one of the deepest things you can learn about leadership is, is a good leader makes the bus go, but a great leader makes it go so that even if he gets off the bus, it's still going. Right. And that, that idea gets, of like stepping successes. down yeah. before you have to and kind of sitting in, in a board over serial position it could be, yeah, I think it's a, it's an encouraging sign. Yeah. Anyway, um,
0: let us move on to our other topic uh, for today. I'm not actually sure how long we have left. I think we've got 15 or 20 minutes left. Um, <laughs> I apologize to our listeners. This is a weird time because we, for complicated reasons, we didn't mark or down when we began recording. But anyway, <laughs> um, and that is uh, we haven't talked about it. Um, and uh, since it was kind of intercepted, but uh, of course the impeachment of Donald Trump is now wrapped up. It's now over. Um, he was acquitted by the Senate after being impeached by the House, uh, and the charges he was brought up on. I can't remember the exact wording of it, but the gist of it was a very specific claim that he had incited violence at the uh, uh, at the Capitol building on the sixth of January. Uh, so he was impeached and then acquitted, I think, seven Republicans voted to remove him um, from office and which would also. So even though he's no longer the president, it would ban him from ever being able to run for president ever again. That didn't happen. Um, but seven is, a, is, is it's a significant number of defectees of the Republicans, but mm. it's still, you know, not that many. Um, mm. It's still significant. It's not, you know, it's like what? F- f- a fifth? of the Republicans in Congress, something like that. It's like less than a fifth, I think. Yeah. Because they've got about 50.
1: Yeah. So, um, what does That's it That's the most well? bipartisan impeachment vote, but at the same time, it's yeah. like definitely most of the Republican party, how, how to put it. So do you want to say most of the Republican party stood by Trump? I'm kind of not into that because the, the senior leader of the Republican party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell made this speech, which has been doing the round, which was starkly damning of Donald Trump. It was a firm rebuke. But his argument was, look, I think uh, Trump did a terrible thing, but I don't think we can impeach because he doesn't believe that impeachment is constitutional once the person is no longer out of office. And this is a legal argument. I disagree with it. We've sort of both discussed uh, are thinking about there, this bit. there were there were others i believe who also didn't vote for it
0: not because of that particular point but because of um the belief that the specific charges that were brought up uh the the way they were written and the language yeah. that was used was was wrong and r- remember when we originally discussed it i said that this was going to happen <laughs> exactly <laughs> because the democrats exactly. had gone for a silly a silly way of phrasing it um they had gone for a sort of do as much damage as possible, make him look the harshest charges imaginable, not with the goal yeah. of removing him, but with the goal of attacking his character. Um, so I'm somewhat annoyed with them for that because I was pro-impeachment and removal. But
1: yeah, And Donald Trump's yeah. lawyer has sort of brought evidence to the Senate to show that the House had fabricated evidence, had sort right. of changed the date on a tweet, and, uh, you know, called of so, yeah, verified things... that it wasn't. Which is just not right. I mean, you shouldn't do it. Um, I think right. he got a little bit ginned up in the, in the clip where I saw him explaining that uh, to some uh, television host. He got right. way <laughs> too aggressive. But, it is, but he's right to say that it, it matters that the prosecution doesn't uh, fabricate evidence. So I does. think that there's two points that I want to make. The one point is that um, long ago when we first started this podcast a couple of years ago, I talked a little bit about my thesis uh, back when I was at university and the work of a philosopher in particular Philip Pettit another one also Christianist on group agency and this is basically about deliberative bodies and it's I'll just gloss over this but the, the, the basic point is that um, there are bodies that make decisions where not everyone in the body agrees with the decision but the whole body makes the decision together And the Supreme Court of the United States is one. The Constitutional Court of South Africa is one. Anywhere where you have a bench of judges. It's not just one judge. You've got a bench of judges. Uh, And they vote, right? So whether the person is guilty or not is going to depend on a vote. So not every judge agrees with it. But once the vote has gone through, they're all committed to the same precedent. And they're all like, you know, even though I don't personally think uh, that this is right, like as a group member, I'm going to go with this. I'm not going to subvert this. I'm going to honor this decision. Because that's, and this is something we all do, by the way, when we vote for a president. Like, not my president, because I didn't vote for him as a city line. Whoever opposes, I'm my president is your president. That's how it is, and we must respect that. It's a duty of citizenship, um, just as it's a duty of the judge to respect the the, the earlier judgments of the court. Um, so, when you have these deliberative bodies, things can go awry, and he has a simplification of how they've gone awry. So the Senate voted on whether or not this impeachment is constitutional. And they voted yes. So that means everyone in the Senate should have to abide by that. Their further judgment has to follow from the thought (laughs) that this is a constitutional impeachment. But then you have uh, someone like Mitch McConnell and others saying, look, I think what he did was terrible, but I'm not going to vote yes because I don't think this is rational. I I don't think this is constitutional. So if you were to ask of the Senate, which is what we all demand of all judges, every criminal and civil court judge has to give an explanation for their judgment, a justification for the judgment. The written justification might go something like this. Well, look, we all agreed that this is constitutional, but... Uh, then we decided uh, to acquit him of impeachment because it's unconstitutional. It would be an irrational judgment. You 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 would not accept such a judgment. It doesn't pass any reasonable right. test. Um, and 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 and, and my Princeton professor, two of my old Princeton professors, they complained about this long ago, ten years ago, before you know Donald Trump was a uh, glint in anyone's eyeball. And they said the impeachment process, because people were already worried about the impeachment process under Bill Clinton had been accelerated. It looked like, you know, this is becoming more and more of a political thing and less like an honorable trial. And they said the more it becomes a political thing, the best way to halt that is to come up with demands. One of them being that the Senate vote not only on the charge, but also on their rationale for finding their verdict. So you vote for one version or another version. And that would make the whole thing a bit longer. But it would also force them to come up with a consistent set of reasons. Right. And, and that would be extremely important because of all trials, this is the trial where the public has the greatest interest. And the public needs to know not only what is the Senate's judgment, but why. And those kinds of changes were recommended. They've not been implemented. In the absence of those changes, most Americans are left feeling like this was really just a matter of: Are you for Team Blue, or are you for Team Red, or are you for right. Team Orange, or for Team Anti-Orange? Um, and there's no more reason than that. And that's a and and I wish that the Americans would learn from this, and that the Senate in the years coming forward will draft rules and procedures that bind them to uh, written justification for voting to acquit or voting to impeach.
0: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and of course, one of the perverse incentives of what we've got now, you know, uh, the Democrats before this were making lots of arguments. I mean, we all saw them. We all heard them about you know, Trump is Hitler. Trump is the enemy of democracy, like it's the end of Western civilization. Or, I mean, they wouldn't mm. use that phrase, but <laughs> the end of civilization yeah. as we know it, uh, if yeah. Donald Trump is not punished by the system. And then the moment he was out of office, the incentive on from sort of a partisan political uh, lens for the Democrats was to make sure the Republicans didn't vote to remove him so that the, the the sort of electoral weight of Donald Trump's crimes can be weighed around their neck. And they got, in this sense, close to the perfect result, which is that a caucus of the Republicans, people like Ben Sass, um, I can't remember who all, all the others are, I think Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania was another one. Uh, Voted to get rid of him, but the majority didn't, and so now there will be this this gash, this this cut across the Republican Party that will go on in internal fighting for a while to come. Um, you know, the, and and Donald Trump remains at the centre of Republican politics, and and the question about him remains at the centre of Republican which politics. Which is the opposite which is, to where he should be. Right. This is if you truly you know believed he was such a threat to the Republic, you'd want to make sure that he didn't have influence over any political party. Yes. But, <laughs> of course, now um, suddenly the Democrats are talking about, or at least in the lead-up to the trial, we're suddenly talking about, well, look, we need to make sure this trial gets over as, lo- as quickly as possible, regardless of the outcome, so we can push ahead with our legislative agenda. Mm. Which to me is annoying because it kind of suggests that they didn't really believe themselves when they said all that stuff about how Donald Trump was the greatest threat to humanity ever. Mm. Um, which is rather it's annoying. A worry. Um, I, it's a worry. I didn't agree with them. But it's it's very it's a kind of nasty cynicism that I think people people often complain about in, in Washington DC. And it's one of the reasons why American politics has become so dysfunctional.
1: Um, and I see that in the Republican side too. I mean, I do think that yeah, exactly. if people weren't as worried about uh what Trump might do to their re election chances, if they really just were I, voting their conscience, I think more you, Republicans would have voted to impeach.
0: Indeed. Uh, Ted Cruz knows that his political career, whether he continues on in the Senate or whether he gets a job on, you know, One American News or whatever as a as a pundit after he's out of the Senate, it depends on him staying in with the right factions. And so mm. the political incentives are very, very clear that regardless of whatever he believes personally, and I think there's a lot of, I think Ted Cruz plays a lot of characters on mm. TV that is not really true about himself. as. Uh, Many people like to point out, Ted Cruz, you know, he goes around and he talks about how he's, you know, this son of Texas and he puts on, you know, he's got this accent and stuff. And he's always kind of talking about... Snake leather boots. uh, Yeah. uh, Right. He's always talking like he's from the smallest small town in rural America. Um, Remember when he talked about New York values in the Republican Mm. debate? And it was actually Mm. back when he was attacking Donald Trump. Anyway. Um, Where did he go to school? What was his university? Princeton University. (laughs) He's an Ivy League guy. He's an American elite guy. Mm. And I think, yeah, anyway, I, I'm just not a fan of him. I used to like him a lot more, but I'm not a fan of him currently because I think there is an inauthenticity to him, mm. um, which is mm. rather annoying. Mm. And um, mm. that cynicism is also why people hate him so much. Mm. You, you know, There's no, no obvious reason why you should, if you're on the left, why you should dislike Ted Cruz more than, I don't know. Um, some other, you know, Marco Jeb Rubio Bush or, yeah, or Jeb or Bush, Bush or anyone, right? Because their politics yeah. is like 90% the same from your perspective. And mm. yet he draws such ire, I think, because a lot of people can detect that kind of inauthenticity about him, which is exactly why Donald Trump called him
1: Lion Ted. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> it worked mm. so well, right? Because yeah, he's a genius <laughs> of that kind of thing, putting his finger on it. Right. Okay, so how can you make things better? I think the one thing would be uh, for future impeachments to be done a bit differently. But that's that's not dealing with Donald Trump. I think that there is this um, power that the Senate cool. has right. to vote on uh, an official censure where basically mm. this you you then are not getting censured by a senator or a group of senators the Senate says yes. you're a bad you've done a very bad thing you're very bad you're you've a done bad, a very bad hombre thing.
0: to use the Trump phrase
1: <laughs> yes now this is just symbolic and I often complain when politics is just symbolic, but it's because I recognize that both the symbol and the executive administrative powers matter. And in this right. case, I think the, since Trump is out of office, the thing that's the most concerning is the symbolic side. Right. It's like with Ramaphosa. I was so disturbed when in the build up to the 2019 election, he was there um, sharing champagne, clinking champagne glasses with Jacob Zuma. Because it was like, <laughs> yes. even though in hard power terms, Zuma's Ramaph- out and the, and the police might or might not be coming after him, in terms of symbolic terms, he's still like an approved figure. Yeah, he's keeping and him in it the fold. It would have been so different if, if Ramaphosa had said on the 2019 campaign trail, guys, we're going to win this election. And one of the reasons we're going to win this election is we are promising not to stay friendly with Zuma and his cronies. He could have done that. Not to repeat the mistakes, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's I think an official censure from the Senate. It was always an idea. There were always guys who said we should do that instead of impeachment. I think the impeach I thought that Trump's offenses were impeachable, uh, and I think an impeachment would have been good. But uh, short of that, uh, since that's no longer an option, I think a vote to censure would be good, not just because um, some official line, which isn't Trump is orange Hitler, but is like just <laughs> very simple, cold language. What he did was the wrong thing, and and we rebuke that, would be good for him and the, and the, and the, and the body politic at large. I think it would also be really good for the Republican Party, because someone like Mitch McConnell, that's exactly what he did. He said he rebuked Trump, but then said, I don't want to go along with his impeachment thing because of, of technicalities or whatever other reasons. Mm. Um, but I think they could get many more Republicans to vote for an official censure. And there's a real chance that they could get the majority of Republican senators to vote for the censure. And then the minority that are still saying, no, literally we can't even criticize Trump for what he did. They become the outcasts instead of Ben Sass and the other six who voted to impeach being the minority within the Republican party. You've got, and Mitt Romney and whatever, you've got, uh, maybe Ted Cruz and, and that clan of like really Trump married sycophants, uh, being the outcasts and and that might help the republican party to to decenter donald trump from its politics and yeah. that and i the, think would be good for the party yeah. and good for the democratic party because the democratic party needs to be facing a healthy republican party and and that in turn would be good for for, and, for the and, whole and vice versa american as well. system yeah which they is both why, need which the is best was a really people.
0: good thing that that Bernie Sanders did not become the candidate or Kamala Harris uh, for the Democrats, because if they went completely around the bend, then the incentive for the Republican party to be a responsible, careful
1: uh, opposition disappears. I don't know how around the bend, do you think Bernie would be injecting more stimulus than Biden is? Yes, but, but
0: Bernie Sanders wants the freaking government to guarantee you a job.
1: I mean, I like that idea. If it's a job where you actually have to add more value than you're getting paid, like yeah. But the, you see,
0: therein, therein is the therein is the rub, isn't it? Because it will be like, well, you know, we'll have another ten teachers' assistants per teacher to make the teaching easier, and <laughs> so you've got nine people sitting in a classroom on their phones getting paid anyway. <laughs> that's that's beside the point. <laughs> I know. I know. Look, I know you have you you have a soft spot for Birdie from your days as a wild t- Occupy Wall Street activist but yeah it's true it's true i know but I i'm not think...
1: i i totally i told dude i'm a fiscal conservative and i, I always have been i always like the idea of the government <laughs> spending less money than it taxes that's you're a, from that's the inexper-
0: you're from the well-known fiscally conservative wing of the occupy wall street movement <laughs> <laughs> of which think... you represent 75 <laughs> percent <laughs>
1: We represent seventy-five percent of the ninety-nine percent going after the one percent who's using, who's using. I mean, where where I think, look, I think there are trade-offs with with Bernie versus um Biden, but I think Bernie's more worried about the thing that we started this episode describing, which is basically banking socialism, socialism for right. bankers. But
0: uh, we uh,
1: call it socialism. Socialism for the rich. Yeah. Because because that's that's what so much of the American system has been through Obama and through Trump uh for the last uh decade plus. And now mm-hmm. with Biden even more, is sort of injecting money in a way that just predictably um does the most benefit for asset holders that are already established. And one of the things I liked about Trump's administration is that Although they borrowed a lot of money, um, they also used they also renegotiated trade deals with Mexico, with Canada, with the EU., with India and with China, especially, which I think were part of the reason that unemployment was pushed lower, which then resulted in finally, this sort of 13-year bull run translating into real wage increases for the lower class for the working class so I think there was good work done there right um, that that wasn't just socialism for the rich um, and I think that Bernie is, is is I don't know sometimes I still wonder if he'd be more likely to go for those kinds of solutions and he and Elizabeth Warren always seem very similar and they are like I mean I think it is socialism for the rich making all uh, university education free you know go get your free MBA or whatever but I do, I do think that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were quite different in how much their policies seemed designed to actually prop up the very system that they criticised.
0: I think I think perhaps you underestimate how much what in reality would actually happen is it would be bureau, uh, expansion of bureaucracy and filling those bureaucratic positions with people who used to work in unions, a lot like the ANC is. Done in our economy, I, I suspect that would be far more the right, right. the result. Um, but you know, you create I'm, more bureaus to regulate the banking sector, whatever, and you fill them with people from trade unions, and then they create a whole bunch of
1: silliness. I I hear you on that, but to take it back to this debate between Lawrence Summers and Paul Krugman, Summers was like, look here's the stimulus we need. We need like $200 billion to pay for all the vaccines and the healthcare and all the immediate directly COVID-related stuff. Then we need like another $400 billion to to, to fill in the real gaps. Like there is an output mm. gap. We need to fill in that output gap. This is $400 billion over both 2020 and 2021. So most of that's already been done. There's very little left to be done. Some, but very little. Unemployment insurance and so on. And then for the rest, if we're going to spend anything on anything, let's spend like three quarters of a trillion dollars on infrastructure projects. And I think America's bureaucracy is still efficient enough. I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of pork barrel um, and there there would be more pork barrel than in South Korea or whatever um, or Switzerland. But I think that they could do that in a way where every dollar spent would have more than $1 positive impact on GDP uh, through infrastructure spending. And I think Bernie Sanders would be more open to that idea, whereas I think Biden, in a way, is a little bit more on the Elizabeth Warren side in terms of who's kind of running his administration, mm-hmm. where the thought is, um, let's try and redistribute wealth rather than let's try and add mm-hmm. more value. I think I I'm think not sure also- if that's right, but. Look, I mean,
0: so once again, I speak from a position of somewhat of some ignorance. But if you were going to spend an enormous amount of money on it, on a lot of things, um, and this is something the Dems would never do, is you spend some of it, a lot more of it on the the Navy, for example, um, so that they can prevent Chinese naval domination of the Pacific. But they wouldn't do that
1: because war bad. (laughs) (laughs) You're reminding me one of the lines that they brought up was. Uh, in, in uh, the 1960s when when LBJ came to power uh, w- one of the hot political debates was guns or butter yes so the government needs to spend more money should it be sending, spending it on butter or on guns uh, right. and LBJ was like well what about both
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and guess what that did it created a huge they invented a lot of money and it created a huge inflation yes um, <laughs> which tanked the economy and then precipitated the rise of uh, Ronald Reagan eventually.
0: Oh, Reagan indeed, um, and and Barry Goldwater's ideology. Anyway, I yeah, think
1: so. The whole the whole circle turned from you know one extreme to the other. So maybe it is a good
0: idea for us to we check in the wrong <laughs> <view. Okay>. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that's uh, that's accelerationism, which I am, do not endorse. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think uh, I think we have to start wrapping up now. Uh so do you have any recommendations, final
1: thoughts, uh, anything? Yeah, okay, For final thought before recommendation is just that the economy is a big and scary thing. Sometimes I even hear that word and sort of see people's eyes glaze over. But it's really just a question of how one way one way I like to think about it is how many holidays do you have left in your life? And I don't just mean days off, but that's part of it. I also mean like days off where you're going to go and do something special. Yesterday I went with my fiance to the Walter Sisulu Botanical Gardens and after that we had a nice dinner. You know, that was like a special thing, but it was a bit of a mission getting out there and you can do bigger special things. You can go out for a weekend to the of Sport or you can go skiing in the Swiss Alps or you can go my favorite thing to do, God, watch great theater in Broadway or New York, um, Moscow, London. How many holidays do you have? That's that's sort of like if 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 the whole system around you is working nicely. If you buy a house and it becomes more valuable because your neighbors are renovating and you're renovating, the whole neighborhood gets better and there's the public park is improved. You know, then there's a little bit of extra there. That you can use to pay for that knee operation you need. But then on top of that. You bought some stocks. Or made some savings or whatever. And then that also does really well. Then you've got an extra holiday you can get out of that. So I just. you know, Maybe my recommendation is. After this year of like a lot of people. Not really going on holiday. To remember. uh, What a sweet and important thing that is. And to think that you only have a certain number of holidays. Left in your life. And whenever people talk about how is the economy doing. And it starts feeling abstract and distant to you. Yeah, you can do the hard stuff of like, well, you know, how likely am I to be able to, you know, send my children to university or, 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 or take care of myself when I get old and sick. But I think that that gets t- heavy quickly. I think just just ask yourself like, am I going to get that extra holiday, or am I going to have five holidays less because the system crunches around me. Mm.
0: Well, thank you for, for bringing me to the uh, face-to-face with the grim reality of my mortality. Um, I'm going to recommend <laughs> uh, uh, another Kings and Generals video on YouTube um, called Nubia, Christian Kingdoms in the Heart of Africa. It's about the Nubian civilization um, and the uh, political entities that existed for a very long time, for thousands of years in what is today Sudan. Um, and it's just an interesting part of history that I'm really fascinated in, which is sort of uh, sub-Saharan African history, uh, but uh, well, it's sort of sub-Saharan, um, but it's 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 history that hasn't, you know, it hasn't had a lot of work done on it, um, mm. but it's really fascinating. I, and yeah. this is, this this is I actually something that. That's, that yeah. really annoys me about, you know, Mbeki's whole African renaissance, Africanist project, you know, the the black nationalist project. you think that, you know, if you're trying to build a sort of black nationalist identity... That the thing to do would be to go back into history and find all these great african civilizations and kingdoms and historical entities and really do research on them and bring them to the forefront and show all the wonder and stuff but no we just get 15 million things talking about how colonialism was the worst thing ever yeah and yeah. it's a real missed opportunity because actually i think it's an interesting part of history that can enrich our, our picture of what the world looked like in the past and no one seems to be interested much in doing it, there's some historians obviously study it, but for the most Mm -hmm. part people don't seem to focus on it, and so it Mm -hmm. really annoys me, and I I really like that there's some content out there on YouTube talking about it I know almost nothing about it, so this video was an introduction for me Um, What's it called again? Nubia, Christian Kingdoms in the Heart of Africa It's on YouTube, it's by a channel called Kings and Generals, Mm -hmm. and it's just a very brief overview of this, uh, this, this part of the world for, you know, about 2000 years of history, a little bit more I um, mean it's cool stuff. It's cool stuff. And it's it yeah, I think it reshapes one's view of Africa a little bit. Um uh because you, you you remember that things are more complicated and older than I think anyone often often has in their in their sort of general view of the world.
1: Right. Yeah. We often have this picture that like perversely that African history kind of starts in fifteen sixty two or sixteen fifty. Yeah, sixteen
0: fifty two. Yeah, right, exactly.
1: Um but it's far more interesting than that. Uh, mm. And
0: mm. and uh, far more connected to Europe actually than than a lot of people think through trade um, and ideas and religion it sounds like right exactly exactly mm. anyway uh, I think that is all the time we have for today I assume my, depending my on recommendation if I've got my, calculation.
1: My, my non just remember that you're going to die and you need to go on holiday <laughs> is yeah. is the video that I talked about um, it's it's it, they put it they put it up on YouTube. Uh, so, it's Lawrence Summers and Paul Krugman, uh, will the dollar undergo an inflation? And if you want to see something that I have been hungering for, which is really intelligent debate between someone on the center left and someone on the far left, I, you know, my joke has been there's no center left, uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> Because because it used to live on the New York Times and, and so on. And, and that kind of uh, went away. No, anyway, if you long want to see that, uh, you'll see it. It's just an hour long. And they do – there's only one graph. And uh, Paul Krugman, one of the things he's really good at is speaking in in very simple terms about quite complicated ideas. And Lawrence Summers has very – got a very compelling argument. And it and – it, yeah, do you think it'll – that, that that it's an interesting argument to check out to to figure out something about the your own future. Uh, so if you have an hour and you want to listen to that, go for it. Perfect.
0: Thank you very very much, everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this, and we will see you next week or later this week, hopefully, hopefully, um, for another episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Keep the flag of liberty flying. <coughs> <coughs> <coughs>